I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. Welcome to This Week in Church History. I'm John Mark Yates. I'm here with my host, Mike McMullen, and we are here to talk about uh, things relating to church histories, particularly during the week of October 4 through 10. And this week in church history, one of the more important events that took place in the history of the church was the first meeting of the Council of Chalcedon that kicked off on the 8th of October and ran until the 1st of November in the year 451. So today we thought it might be interesting to talk not only a little bit about Chalcedon, but also to talk about the seven ecumenical councils. Uh, Oftentimes, as Protestants, we don't often think about uh, some of these important councils that defined the nature of uh, doctrine uh, and dogma uh, and tried to help us understand and articulate exactly what we believe uh, about who Jesus Christ is and about how theology uh, works. So let's do this, Mike, as we're, we're talking about, let's just start at the first ecumenical council, and let's maybe define some terms. When we talk about ecumenical, what do we mean? Because in the, I think in the 20th century and 21st century, ecumenical came to be something very different than what's meant uh, back yeah, in this time period. it simply meant it was the first worldwide council of the church. It was called for a specific reason, and uh, church leaders, pastors, the bishops were called uh, by Constantine, really, to come together uh, in in an attempt to settle uh, the major issue of the day that was dividing the church, and so it was to be a worldwide gathering. So oftentimes these councils were a reaction to dangerous things that were seen within uh, either culture or um, beliefs that were arising amongst the churches. Yeah, the, the, the councils were an attempt to um, restore peace, um, reach uh, an orthodox consensus among the, the church leaders, amongst the bishops, about an issue really of the day, and, and to develop as far as possible a, a unified church across the world. And so when we get to the first ecumenical council in Nicaea, we're dealing with a major heretic by the name of Arius. And uh, how do you solve a problem like Arius? <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, that's the incredible thing that, um, you know, that the early days of Arius, you know, questioning who Christ is, trying to define Jesus as represented in the New Testament, you know, who was he? And, and how do we understand him? And, and is he someone we worship? And, and Arius came out on the negative that uh, he was a great man, but uh, he, he wasn't God and wasn't to be worshipped. It, it caused a, a great trouble within the church. And, and yet the church has just been through an incredible persecution by Diocletian and Galerius. And, and by the raising up of Constantine, however he's viewed as whether good or bad for the future of the church, uh, he's used to stop persecution. Yeah. He's used to bring about Nicaea. And uh, the reason, I mean, if we're being honest, that, that Constantine even cares, I, I think there's some questions whether or not he even really cared about nuances in Christology or other components, but he was actually frustrated because there were riots in the streets because Arius had been deposed from his teaching position in Alexandria. 
And uh, it was upsetting things uh, in the culture. And it wasn't just in Alexandria, but it was really kind of across that, uh, that, that southeastern region of the Mediterranean world. Uh, and people were upset because they liked the music and the teachings that Arius had been producing. Oh, yeah, he was great. He was like the Charles Wesley of his day. <laughs> he would put doctrine to, to song. And, and he knew that that was a great way to learn, you know, the, the truths or uh, the ideas that you were putting forth. Now, his were all heretical, but uh, never mind. He recognized that it was a great way, as did John and Charles Wesley, for people to learn uh, what it is that uh, you're wanting them to learn. And, of course, in the Wesley's uh, thing, it was about Scripture, and for Arius, it was about his views in in undermining who Christ was. Yeah, you can imagine the repeating chorus: "Jesus is begotten, not made." Jesus begotten. Oh not yeah, made. I mean the words uh, we have, you know, extracts of some of the things that uh, he encouraged people to sing, and I, I, I don't get how they were catchy, but maybe in the day they were. I don't, I'm not sure. But he he must have been a mad guitarist or something. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly. You know, Constantine has spent decades killing all his rivals to become the sole emperor. And there's been a divided empire, and uh, Constantine doesn't want to share um, the imperial throne with anyone. So he kills all the rival emperors. He kills every member of their family. 324 becomes, becomes the sole emperor. Uh, wants a, a unified empire, and yep. the first thing he sees is a massive division in the church over the teaching of Arius. <laughs> so you can imagine his frustration. So we have this council that's called to try to deal with this fact that you've got a faction growing in the church that uh, says that um, Jesus didn't always exist, uh, that God made him at some point, that this is exactly um, what uh, John is talking about in his gospel when he says that Jesus is God's only begotten son. There, in other words, there was a time in which Jesus did not exist. He, he just, God spoke him. Uh, actually, I think Arius talks about, or, or Eusebius of Nicomedia at least, talked about uh, that Arius believed that it was uh, ex nihilo, that, yes. that Jesus was created yes. just out of nothing and then yes. just kind of started, which is this weird kind of concept. So the, the council itself, is tasked with dealing with this idea. And as the ideas are put forward at the council, um, it gets a little heated and a little violent. Uh, it does. And uh, there is, you know, we don't have the official records of the council, but uh, we have extracts from people who kept their own accounts of what took place and, you know, really did Santa Claus punch areas in the <laughs> face. Well, it's it's a nice idea. Certainly, you know, St. Nicholas of Myra was in attendance. Yes. Uh, and, and, and certainly would have upheld the idea of the deity of Christ. So, <laughs> so we get this together. They, they put together a formulation that is actually um, based on kind of a catechetical uh, statement by Eusebius of Caesarea, who is um, the, the great famous Eusebius church historian, one of the earliest ones. And uh, they put together this, this statement that many churches still recite or still use on a regular basis. Uh, why do you think that at least that particular council was able to put forward a creed that's had such longevity? It's a foundational doctrine. Who Christ is matters for all eternity. Yeah. 
And it's a, as Athanasius would teach that Arius's views were not mere speculations about the Trinity or about Christ or something. They, they were, uh, he said, very daggers aimed at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of the gospel. If, if just a man, however good that man, has died on the cross, then we're still in our sins. Right. And it, it, just, it just so incredibly important for us to remember that doctrine does matter. Yes, doctrine can divide. Um, but sometimes that division is actually right uh, when we hold forth the the truth of the Word of God. And that is what those who were there at Nicaea tried to do. Now, the next ecumenical council isn't until 381, and really it gets at the same issues. Why are they having to deal with the exact same issue of Arianism? I thought they settled it in 325 at Nicaea. Yeah, uh you're not going to get rid of heretics that easily. Oh. So, you know, if we don't stick close <laughs> to Scripture and, and to what it teaches, we're capable of some very incredibly interesting and uh, deviant ideas, I think. And that includes ideas about Christian theology and about who Jesus is, about the Holy Spirit. So I think Constantinople debated and con confirmed what Nicaea had declared and, and added to that about the deity of the Holy Spirit. Right, because there was this wonderful little group that was running around. I just love their name, the Pneumatomachi, the spirit fighters. <laughs> yeah, you've been practicing that because it's easy for you to say. You know. It was a sneeze. It just yeah, uh, kind of right. snuck out there. The Pneumatomachi were these uh, pastors and bishops who were running around saying the Holy Spirit is not part of the Trinity. And uh, it was just kind of a radical concept. And the Cappadocian fathers, uh, Basil and Gregory and Gregory, had already addressed this helpfully. But uh, as, they, as we get to the uh, First Council of Constantinople, uh, to try to create a, a very clear statement that we understand there to be God the Father, God the Son— God, the Holy Spirit. There's three persons, one uh, essence, one spirit, uh, homoousia there, that it's it's so important, that three-in-one concept. And uh, while it was, I think, clear at Nicaea, they make it even more so at uh, Constantinople, and it sets the pattern uh, really for the future and, and what's there. But again, it's an emperor that calls it. Emperor Theodosius is the one who yeah, and, kind of and what out. happens after Constantine is uh, the emperors after him, apart from the kind of blip of Julian, they become increasingly um, outwardly Christian in, in how they live, what they say, and Theodosius and, and um, Gratian are two of those who are probably the most committed or orthodox as believers, as emperors. It's amazing what they achieved, really. But yeah. It's, it's absolutely crazy. The cultural uh, and political components, uh, a few weeks ago when we were talking about this in my Church History one class, uh, trying to tie together some of the political aspects that lead right. to some of these, um, it's, it's amazing, uh, right. to say the least, when we come through. All right, so we have Nicaea, we have Constantinople in 381, and then we get to the Council of Ephesus in 431, uh, which is a, a different council that, again, is is dealing uh, a little bit more with some finer nuance. And this is what we we find with each subsequent um, 
council of the church that the the aspects of theology that we're dealing with, particularly Christology, becomes increasingly granular. And they're trying to break down on some of these issues what uh, what really matters. So at the Council of Ephesus in 431, which kind of meets that summer uh, of 431, uh, there's some, some issues with uh, a guy by the name of Nestorius, who it's somewhat questionable. Is he a heretic? Is he not it, a heretic? It's, it's a debated issue, I think, even still today. Yeah. And, and these are very intricate debates about the meaning of words and what those mer- words actually represent. One of the big issues that they took up at that particular council was Pelagianism. And Augustine had already written quite a bit against Pelagius. Uh, really, what was Pelagianism and why did they really care about that? Uh, Pelagianism has to do with, in a sense, how far we have fallen and um, what is required or necessary in the achievement of salvation. Yeah, because Pelagius, or at least as reported by Augustine, stated that uh, you know you weren't born with sin. You you actually could potentially live and walk a perfect life outside of Christ. Yeah, we're not tainted by original sin. We're sinners because of the sin we commit. Well, I know that's you, definitely not me. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the trouble was, of course, Pelagius was British, so, oh, so <laughs> that makes it even know. better. Yeah, that's right. Um, you yeah, know, the only theologian that Britain produced in the time of the early church is a heretic. So. <laughs> Maybe that does say something about uh, what we should be listening to. But as they're dealing with Pelagius, they're, they're soundly rejecting that idea that, that we could somehow exist and be perfect. That- yeah, the, the great thing about these councils is, is generally how orthodox they decide. Yeah. The, the declarations they make, we are, you know, so, uh, so much... Uh, indebted to them, the, the godly men that really did debate these things, these were uh, people who'd been through persecutions or uh, had been pastors and leaders, and, and they're not academics in that sense. They are you know, talking about what salvation is, what it consists of, and who God is uh, in his relationship with men and in himself, and trying to think that through uh, as related to Scripture. And with that, this is why we, we talk about them increasingly getting more granular because they set up the the truth and they are very definitive in what they say. This is the truth. This is this is what the church has always uh, taught. This is that uh, rule of faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints and, and keeping that moving forward. And, and they're very careful to preserve that in every single way that they possibly can. And once it's settled, it's settled. But then with each subsequent uh, council, there's some new argument that someone has brought up that says, well, if this is then the case, then what about this? And they're having to, to wrestle with that. So if you're having the Council of Ephesus in 431, our This Week in Church History featured Council of the Week, Council of Chalcedon in 451 from October 8th, having its first meeting also called by the emperor, the challenge that they were having there related to how well does Christ's divinity and humanity interact? And in fact, this becomes part of the debate not only for Chalcedon in 451, but also in the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, um, 
that they're trying to figure out what does it mean that Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully human, and how are we supposed to understand that? Uh, There was a, a group of people who said that we should understand the unique divine nature of uh, Jesus as what they called a tertium quid, a third substance, almost like if you put ingredient A and ingredient B together in a blender and mix uh-huh. it out, it becomes something else. Right. It's not just strawberries and cream. It suddenly is this this beautiful strawberry ice cream or something, it's right? It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's something else. And so they were saying that this is what's happening in Christ is that he's some other thing. And the, the Council of Chalcedon came back with uh, some very strong words that said, no, that no, is not the case. If he's not 100% man, then he cannot be our substitute. That's right. If he's not 100% God, he cannot represent God. If he is, you know, strawberries and cream blended together, if he is stream, then he doesn't represent either party. That's right. There is no reconciliation. He is not a substitute. The Chalcedonian definition was an incredible definition uh, about who Christ was yep. and, and really set the seal on, on the debates of you know, the previous 400 years, an incredible thing, really. And, and that just was picked up when we get to 553 and Second Council of Constantinople. They just pick up the same idea as Eutychius uh, had tried to carry that same idea forward and make the same claims um, and you had this this theology that developed called monophytism, uh, uh, monophysitism that that blended everything. There's just, there's just one nature in Christ instead of understanding um, how all of this was supposed to work together, and in uh, in def- keeping the unique nature of who Jesus is. Uh, and it created a, a, a yet another problem. So the Emperor Justinian is having to call this council together to to deal with the exact same issue that had already been settled. Yeah, and that's the thing. It, it had been settled in the definition. And, and I love the definition. You know, Jesus is perfect both in deity and in humanness. This selfsame one is also actually God and actually man. And there is no blending. There isn't a single nature. There isn't a newly created substance. It is God and man, 100% each. It is impossible, of course, because it's not 200%. But we have finite minds, and of course, this is what has been declared, and we take it in trust and faith because that's how Scripture presents it to be. And this is one of the unique teachings and declarations of Christianity, that all forms of true Christianity hold to uh, that you're you can't Protestants hold to this, Catholics are going to hold to this, uh, the Orthodox churches are going to hold to this. Everyone who claims the name Christian at least should at least be able to hold to this kind it, of concept. It's a foundation and fundamental doctrine, and and it marks out those groups that are out with Orthodox understanding. So the many cults that you have today who don't accept the Trinity, fall outside the declarations that have been made for so long. I read recently there are 4,000 different religions in the world, religions and new religious movements. The vast majority would fall outside of those parameters. That's exactly right. And this is just one of those things that, uh, as I was talking with one of my classes uh, earlier, 
um, uh, in the semester, we were talking about how this is a baseline that you can use to even these these councils can be a baseline that you can even use to determine whether someone even has a legitimate claim to being a Christian. Right. Because there are plenty of people who would love to be able to say, oh, yes, I'm I'm a Christian. I believe uh, in, in, in Jesus. And then when you start probing just a little bit, you realize that their version of Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus of their own making or a Jesus that makes them feel good or a Jesus, whatever. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And it's not the Jesus that's then reflected subsequently in these councils. Right that get very uh, detailed about this. And of course, it still impacts or or influences things today. Um, As pastors, uh, we have to decide about people, say, who've been baptized uh, in a church that is non-Trinitarian. Yeah, absolutely. Which, if they're not Trinitarian, they have any connection, at least with uh, the creeds uh, that we would see, at least from a church history perspective? We would have to say it falls outside the parameters of what is orthodox orthodox and accepted as Christian. Exactly. So then that makes that question uh, less of a sticky wicket uh, of sorts for those who uh, are trying to uh, ascertain what's there. Well, after the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, we then moved to the Third Council of Constantinople in 680. You would think they could have found somewhere else to go. It was such a pleasant city. (laughs) (laughs) It was by the seaside. It was a perfect resort town. Why would you go anywhere else? <laughs> it makes it great. So they make the third council in 680 to 681. Uh, and then the the last of the seven ecumenical councils that you often hear uh, reference is the second council of Nicaea. We go back to the town of uh, Nicaea in 787. Um, this is the first time that we're really talking, the, the, some of the ecumenical councils that one where we we start talking less about Christology and more about worship. Uh, and we'll have to save this one, I think, for a separate This Week in Church History because it, it talks about iconoclasm. Yeah, it's an important council in its own right. Um, m- many of the issues that it touches on makes it uh, particularly unique, I think, among the other councils. Yeah, and that question of the use of icons in worship, I, I think, is one that we, we ought to think about it in another episode. So we'll, we'll make a note and see if we come back to that one at some point uh, in coming episodes. Well, with that being said, we are going to draw this episode to a close, though. And you've at least been introduced to the seven councils uh, of the church, the seven ecumenical councils. And uh, on this uh, week in church history, we thank you for listening. And we look forward to joining you again next week. <laughs>